Um, so do you know how many times I had to type out the word Melchizedek for this sermon? Or actually, do you know how many times I misspelled the word Melchizedek? Um, who is Melchizedek? In the book of Hebrews, we see this guy. We just read about him. It's very curious. It's mysterious. Uh, the language surrounding him is very weird and, and, and curious that he has no mother, no father, no origin of days type of thing. And today's science fiction uh, element, you would just, you could hear him in a Marvel movie like pretty easily or his midichlorian count was way above uh, Liam Neeson's comfort zone. But he's without mother, father, genealogy, uh, countless debates about this guy throughout all of theological history, like biblical history. People are trying to figure out who is this guy and people are doing blogs and writing books about it. And um, I'm going to try and focus on some of the bigger picture items about him today in just a couple of hours of my sermon that we have here. But if you want to nerd out and do all the, the back, you know, thinking through it and trying to figure out what does it mean that he has no father, no mother, no genealogy and all of that, feel free, nerd out, do a TED Talk. Um, if you have won multiple Bible trivia contests, you probably, this might be for you. You're free in Jesus to do that. But what I want to do today is Hebrews 7, which we just read, it's a commentary on Genesis 14. So I want us to go to Genesis 14 to where we meet Melchizedek in the first place. Then I want to come back to Hebrews 7 and walk through this commentary. And then I want to figure out how we're going to respond to this passage um, as believers in Jesus. So let me pray. I'm going to ask God how to do this. So Father, I do ask that you would send your spirit help us to understand who you want, what you want us to understand about Melchizedek, about who he is, who he was, what it means that he was there. And I ask God that along with the writer of Hebrews that we would see Jesus in him. We see that he resembles Jesus. So I ask God that you would help us to see and glorify Jesus as a result of this guy Melchizedek. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So in studying the Bible, it can be really helpful if you're studying an Old Testament passage to see if there's a New Testament passage that actually has a commentary on it. So you go back to the Old Testament passage through the eyes of the person who wrote about it. It's a divine, divinely inspired commentary uh, from one Bible author to another so um, we see this, he's commenting, he's reviewing this passage. He says in, in Hebrews 7, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. So we need to figure out where is he talking about? And it's in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. And I'll just read this to you guys. You can follow along if you've got an app that would take you there quickly. So after his return, this is Abraham, from the defeat of Cater Lomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham, I'll call him Abraham throughout this sermon. It's Abram in there, but God changed his name. We can talk about that later. But Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. 
And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me persons, the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anor, Eshol, and Mamre take their share. Okay, so we need to set up the context for what's happening here. And the context is earlier in the book of Genesis, God went to Abram or Abraham and said, out of you, I'm going to make a nation, right? The old guy, 70 whatever years old, and God says, out of you and your loins, I'm going to make this nation. So God's, I'm going to give you people, I'm going to give you law, I'm going to give you land. And he brought this to Abraham and he promised that he would do that. So the way that he's going to do that is to fight battles for this land. And so Abraham is going out a couple of chapters later, and he's fighting battles to get this land. And he had just returned after he and his army had defeated the king of Sodom and some other kings in and around Caterlomer. Now, the thing about this is that God is saying, I'm, I'm going to have you, I'm going to have you fight. Your, your army is outmatched. You're outnumbered. You're like 75 years old. Um, some of the the commentaries really like put Abraham in this really high place, you know, like he must have been like a superhero himself, but he's like 75 years old. Like when his wife heard that they were going to have a baby, she started laughing. Like this is, this is what God has to work with. And so he's moving forward and he's bringing these victories to this old man and his army because uh, Melchizedek wants him to know that God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, has delivered your enemies into your hand. You see, God wants to create a nation out of the person of Abraham. He says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And this is the way it's going to happen. It's, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to make this thing happen. So he does that, and he returns from it, and these two kings come out to meet him. One of them is the king of Sodom. Okay, The king of Sodom, I don't know if you know this, in the Old Testament, this is a, an evil king. right? Uh, a few chapters later, God destroys Sodom's, uh, destroys Sodom, the king's whole area that he's overseeing because he's an evil king with a, a, a nation that's hostile toward God. It's a pagan nation, and God destroys that. And he's the king over that. He had just beat him, and what does he do? He's wanting to take from Abraham. Give me something. Even though you just beat me, and God beat, beat me, give me persons. So you have that king who's an evil king, and then you have him juxtaposed to this other king, Melchizedek, who comes out of Salem, which means peace. And so uh, as far as Sodom is evil, Melchizedek is the opposite. So he comes in, he's, I'm a king of peace. I know you've just had war, but I'm coming in as the king of Salem. Uh, most commentators would say that Salem is the, the precursor to Jerusalem. It's uh, based off of the word shalom in Hebrew, which means peace, that this is the king of peace, and we see that in Hebrews chapter 7. But this king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. He's bringing something to Abraham. He's blessing Abraham. He's giving to Abraham because he loves the God most high. Some people say that Mel Melchizedek was a, a, a priest of um, like a, a pagan nation. Like Some people have even said that. Um, but no, he, it says in here he's the priest of the Most High God. He blesses him. He jumps into this scene by blessing and by bringing something and giving 
to Abraham rather than taking. And there's no, um, there's no introduction of him in here. It's just he jumps into the scene in the book of Genesis, and he kind of sounds like a character of Lord of the Rings, like, you know, Gimli and, and Boromir and Melchizedek went down to the cave. I mean, it would just fit right in there, or a, a rapper's name. But everyone debates this guy. He's mysterious. He comes out of nowhere. We never see him again in the Bible unless somebody is commenting on him. We never see him in the Bible. And he's one of the most curious figures in the entire Bible because of this commentary that we have in Hebrews chapter 7. And so we look at, there's basically a handful of major passages that teach us about Melchizedek. We have Hebrews 5, Hebrews 7, Psalm 110, Genesis 14, which we just read, and then there's a small shout out in Hebrews chapter 6. But he has this weird interaction with Abram, the father of the nation. Why is it weird? Because there's a lot of firsts that are happening in this chapter. This is the first time that a king is ever mentioned in the entire Bible, is these two kings. It's the first time bread and wine is mentioned in the sense, like we, we will partake of bread and wine or grape juice later this morning because it represents communion. So here this king shows up with communion, the first communion, like communion hasn't happened yet. The Passover of which we take communion, it signifies back to Jesus, which also signifies back to the Passover. That hasn't happened yet. That happens in the book of Exodus. So he's introducing communion. He's also introducing this priesthood, right? There's no, there's no priestly line. There's no sacrificial uh, system where priests have to go and, and do the thing yet. It just hasn't been created yet. So we have this weird interaction because it's all these firsts where Melchizedek is showing up and doing these things. So king of, of Salem, he's a king, Jerusalem, a historical king of a historical place of Salem. And one of these is flexing and the other is not. And he brings with him blessing from the God most high. So his priesthood then had a pecu peculiar function. So he's not sacrificing on behalf of Abraham or anything like that. He's coming to bless Abraham. It, it's a movement toward him. It, it's grace. It's, it, we see this in the New Testament where God sends Jesus to come and be with us. He moves toward us to give us something. It's different from the priesthood that we even see later in the Bible. And another first that we see in here is that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. He was in the presence of Melchizedek. He saw the blessing that Melchizedek gave to him. And then what did he do? He responded by giving tithe, a tenth of what he had. So it's a lot of firsts and it's a lot of weird stuff. We'll try and talk through a little bit of it. Um, but do we have priests yet in the Bible in Genesis 14? No. Priesthood started later. Do we have communion yet? No. That started later. Jesus hasn't died. We don't have communion yet in Genesis 14. All, out of nowhere, this king comes and blesses and starts to interact with Abraham. So who does Melchizedek sound like? He's a king, right? King of righteousness, king of Salem, or king of peace. A priest of the Most High God. It says this in both Genesis and Hebrews. He introduces the priesthood. Hebrews 5 tells us that Jesus is even a priest after the order of Melchizedek's priesthood. He shows up with communion in hand, even when it hasn't been introduced yet. He blesses Abram. Who does he sound like? He's starting to sound like Jesus, right? 
the author of Hebrews says that he resembles Jesus. Like, no matter how weird and, and mysterious this man Melchizedek is, he's pointing to Jesus. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand. So let's look back at Hebrews chapter 7 and start to walk through some of this stuff. Some say that this is Jesus. When the author of Hebrews is writing about Melchizedek, they're saying it's an Old Testament Christophany or theophany. It's an appearance of God in the Old Testament. That's what some people really believe. It's like a cameo appearance of Jesus before he's Jesus in this Genesis passage. Um, some say it's an angel, right? That an angel just showed up and, and blessed Abram and, and did the bidding of God. Uh, some say that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, right? That he's an Old Testament type. Like we, we see this in Abram. We see it in a lot of men in the Old Testament. We can look at some of the things that they did and how they, the things that they did point to Jesus. That there are th some things that Jesus would have done. Some think he was just a great man. Um, there are some that even think, like with the genealogy part, like it could have been Abraham's great, 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 I think that's right, grandfather. Because when you look at the genealogy that's coming through, his great-grandfather was Shem, was, was born, and it says that he was still alive even when Abram was alive, and that Abram died before Shem did. So it's like people lived longer in the Old Testament, and it could have been that, but I don't think so, because he probably would have called him Shem instead of Melchizedek. But the question is, is Melchizedek a shadow of the things to come? Yes. Is, Mel is Jesus a greater fulfillment of what Melchizedek was about? Yes. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He says, in the old days, God came to us through prophets. He came to us through angels. He came to us through the law. There is the priests and all of that. And he's like, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. You've got to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the, the substance behind those Old Testament things. When we look at Psalm 110, um, it says that Jesus, that the Messiah, is a priest forever in the order, after the order of Melchizedek, right? It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, and this psalm is a messianic psalm that talks about Jesus. Jesus himself quotes this psalm in Matthew 22, to establish the identity of Jesus as better than angels, better than men, better than kings, better than priests, etc., that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a messianic psalm that a king will come out and rule and will also be a priest. It's a king-priest. Melchizedek was a king-priest, but Jesus is the Messiah, right? Um, you can get off in your thinking, like the Mormon church thinks that they are priests along the lines of Melchizedek, that they have priests that are now uh, working with the Melchizedekian priesthood, right? That because if he lives forever, then they are part of that. So it, the, the writer of Hebrews is like, look, Melchizedek is great. He's mysterious, all of this. We'll get into that even a little bit more, but Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Jesus is better. Hebrews 7 says in 7, uh, sorry, verse 3, that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. He resembles Jesus. That means he points to Jesus. So he's a king of righteousness, according to Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, high God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. 
He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Okay, we'll stop there. So his name means king of righteousness and king of peace. And again, we can find typology even in his name. There's lots of Old Testament names. Isaiah means laughter. Um, when, um, uh, yeah, so we, we see these different types of names that mean something when God changes their names. Um, but in Hebrews chapter 7, it's pointing to Jesus, who is the king of righteousness. 1 John 2, 1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Right? Um, there's all sorts of places in the New Testament that talks about him being the righteous. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. We, we also know that Jesus, because of his work, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus, being the Son of God, gives us peace with the Father. But here's the thing about the difference about the kinglyship of Melchizedek and the kingship of Jesus is that Jesus is the king of peace, he's the king of kings, but he didn't consider that something to be grasped, but he emptied himself of that. That kingship, he's like, I, I am the king of kings, but I'm going to come and serve. I'm going to come and, and not even be called a king. I'm going to be called um, a friend of sinners. I'm going to come on behalf of God. And Melchizedek didn't do that. He was a king. He didn't lay down his life the way that Jesus laid down his life. We have peace with God through Jesus. Wrath and love, righteousness and peace all come together at the cross, right? Um, this next verse in verse 3 is, and the, the following verses they're probably the most debated uh, verses, and it's the most mysterious part of Melchizedek. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or days, beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And down in verse 8, in the one case his tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he still lives. Right? There's even this thought that Melchizedek is still around today. I think he works at Lowe's. I think he's in the tool department there. There's this old guy who's like really blessing me with his knowledge on tools, but <laughs> maybe not. But most of the debate is right here. I don't know what to do with this. Is he eternal? Is he unborn? Is he not dying? He resembles the Son of God. We know that. And you might think that he is Jesus. It's testified that he lives today. So again, like if you guys want to write a book, I'll read it. Um, but it's, it's hard to figure out exactly what he's talking about. Um, some of the things that, that people have said, and I kind of agree with this, but to a certain degree I don't. Contextually, he has no father or mother or days. And what I mean by that is in Genesis 14, when he shows up, um, there's just no begat part to it. And what I mean by that is Adam begat, and then Noah begat, and Abraham begat, and you see this, like the, the genealogies going from Adam to Jesus, they're, they're all over the place. It's so precise, and it's so good for Matthew and Luke to do this. Like they have gone through and painstakingly made sure 
that whoever begat, whoever begat, whoever begat, it went from Adam to Jesus so that we would know the line that Jesus came from, right? You don't have that in the text in Genesis chapter 14. So it could be no genealogy just means nobody laid it out. Nobody gave a genealogy within that particular passage. Um, I don't know. I, as I'm looking at the Old Testament, why it was written or not written, there is no genealogy. I see a picture of Jesus in the text, and I think that that's what the, the author of Hebrews wants us to know. Um, he was also a priest before the priesthood even existed. In a sense, he was a Levi before there were even Levi's. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to make tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So what we are seeing is that Melchizedek is a precursor. He's a precursor to communion. He's a precursor to the priesthood. He's a precursor to tithing. He's a precursor to which would be law. He's a precursor to all these different things. And then Hebrews says he's also a precursor to Jesus. Most importantly, a precursor to Jesus. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I think it's important for us to understand that Melchizedek resembles Jesus, not as the Son of God, but Jesus is the Son of God, but he points to him. Only Jesus is the Son of God. The point that the author of Hebrews is making is this. You can argue about who he is, but when you hear about Melchizedek, you're to go to Jesus. When you see how the writer of Hebrews talks about Melchizedek, you should keep in the theme with that. And that theme is that Jesus is the substance. Jesus is better. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is our savior. Melchizedek points to Jesus, who is the substance. Jesus is the true and better Melchizedek. This is how it goes. The Hebrews... Uh, author was writing to a, a Jewish audience, first century Jewish believers who would believe that Jesus was Messiah. And he's making this case that even in this, this um, Old Testament Melchizedek thing that you guys would understand and have grown up with, and here was this thing, it's rumored that he's still walking around Lowe's today and all of that, that he's like, he is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the substance. Jesus is the great high priest of God. He's the priests of priests. Permanently and continually, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's not what Melchizedek can do. He is not like previous priests. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, whereas they died, Jesus lives. And not only does he live, he is the lamb. He sacrifices on behalf of us, but is himself the sacrifice. This priest, Jesus, is above all earthly priests and powers. Jesus is the great blesser of men. He's the great blesser from the power of God in heaven. Melchizedek is the king of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace who brings that. He's the king of kings. He's the great king. 
the king of righteousness, the true king of peace. He is the true bread and wine. Melchizedek brought it in form. Jesus is it, the true communion. Melchizedek points to Jesus with both hands, so how do we do the same here? So up until now, I haven't been preaching very much. It's probably felt more like a, a, I don't know, a lecture in seminary or something like that. So I've been, um, I don't want to get up here and just lecture you guys. Like, what does this mean? What is it, what is the, the weight of Melchizedek's presence here in this passage? So I want for you to, above all else, feel the presence of Jesus. This is what I want. I want the presence of Christ for you because there's nothing else to want. The, the, the true and better king, the true and better priest, there's nothing else to want. I want to focus a little bit on, a two, on two verses on our way out here. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Okay? So when Abraham was in the presence of Melchizedek, how did he respond? He responded as an inferior person. And what I mean by inferior is that we have faith. Abraham is known as faith. Like you look in Hebrews chapter 11, he's on that list of people that have faith. And in faith, Abraham did what? He responded to the presence of Melchizedek by giving him a tenth of all that he had. He had communion with him, right? He responded by giving in the sense that he was giving back. Um, Melchizedek had blessed him. What does he do? He goes and he gives. Abraham gave to Melchizedek. He's really putting his faith in Jesus because Melchizedek points to Jesus, but his faith is in there. Faith goes from the inferior to the superior. In Colossians, it says that we were created by Jesus for Jesus, right? So we have the blessing of Jesus. We were created by him to do what? To respond to him. We were created for him, put our belief in him, put our hope in him, the one who is superior to us. Why? because we've experienced his presence at some point in our lives. And secondly, I want us to respond to Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is the superior Jesus is the one who blesses. And how does he bless us? He saves and he intercedes. The, um, John Bunyan wrote this about Jesus' sacrifice, his justification. That Jesus justifies by bestowing to us, not expecting from us. This is where Melchizedek really shines. He shows up next to a king who wants to take from Abraham. And what does Melchizedek do? He blesses, he gives, he brings communion, and he gives to him, not expecting from us. This is where he shines as a precursor, as a foreshadow of Jesus. But the question that the writer of Hebrews um, wants us to ask, I think, is how do you answer all these questions about Melchizedek without Jesus? You can't right? How do you answer the question of an indestructible life without Jesus? You, you can't. How do you answer the question of how God is loving us right now without Jesus? You can't. Jesus has the power of an indestructible life. See, blessing was bestowed onto us by Jesus. We see this in Ephesians 1. When we become saved, that 
that Jesus gives every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to us. He blesses us. That's salvation. And salvation is perfect. It's done. It's finished, Jesus said at the cross. So if salvation is finished to the uttermost, it's done and it's perfect. And then he says this. He says that Jesus, because he always lives, he always lives to make intercession for them. That he intercedes for us. He's interceding, interceding for a Redeemer Church right now. He's praying for members of Redeemer Church right now. In heaven, there's all this stuff going on. There's these angels flying around and people are screaming, holy, holy, holy. And there's this lake of glass and, and all of this. And God's hearing the voice of his son with whom he is well pleased intercede for us, praying for you, praying for me. Dane Ortland says this, intercession is the constant hitting of refresh on our justification in the court of heaven. He is interceding for us. It reflects his heart, the same heart that carried him through life and down into death on behalf of his people is the heart that now manifests itself in constant pleading with and reminding and prevailing upon his Father to always welcome us. This is Jesus' heart toward you. He always lives and makes intercession for them, for you, for me, for us. He's superior. And this intercessory office of Jesus, it shows what Jesus' heart is toward us right now. His heart is drawn toward us as it, now as it ever was. And it's the manifestation of his heart that's seen in his constant intercession for us. Constant. Forever. Indestructible life. Always lives. Always intercedes for us. So what is Jesus doing right now? He's praying for us. Right now. Is this real to you right now? That Jesus is praying for you right now. I want to be in the presence of the one who intercedes for me. I don't want to pray to him anymore. I want to see him. I want to hear his voice as he's praying over me. That's what I want for you guys. I want for you guys to see this Savior of yours. I want for you to know that Jesus is praying for you right now, and I want you to experience his heart toward you right now. In Institutes, it says this, that a divine son never ceases always to bring his atoning life, death, and resurrection before his father in a moment-by-moment -moment way. Christ turns the father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the father's throne. Man, I, it's my hope that because Jesus is interceding for me and for you and this church, it's my hope that anything can happen this morning. That when we look at him, like nothing can stand when Jesus is interceding for you. This is the moment that I pray for when I, when I prep for preaching. Jesus unashamedly is bringing glory to his Father by talking to him about us and our sins and our shortcomings and and the things that we need to be encouraged in and, 
and all of our foolishness and all of our stuff. He's talking to God about that and he's interceding for us because we are the inferior. So how do we respond to this? We can experience Jesus in his presence here today and I think one of the ways that we can do this is to follow suit, to intercede for each other, to pray for each other the way that Jesus is praying for us. Um, my group on occasion comes to the mall and we pray for people and hopes that we can share the gospel with them and preach the excellencies of Jesus. And one night there was a few of us or a couple of us and we saw this guy and he just kept pacing back and forth and he was like a caged animal. We couldn't tell if he was limping, he was laser focused on the floor and he just kept walking back and forth like in this very dramatic fashion. And God just really highlighted someone else and said, yeah, I think that God's saying, we, we had kind of written up some, some thoughts beforehand and one of the guys was like, I think that's the guy. And so I went over and I'm like, well, he's not on my list, but you know what? I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to ask God that, to see if, what he wants, what he needs. So I walked up to him and, and said, hey, you know, I'm a Christian and we go to this church that's over here in the mall. Wanted to know if maybe we could pray for you for something. I don't know if you have pain in your body or we, we just don't know, but apparently God has highlighted you and wants us to pray for you. And he said, well, he goes, I don't have any pain in my body, but I'm so anxious right now. I don't, I feel like I'm going to die. And we're like, oh. And so we kind of listened to him and, um, and just talked with him to find out a little bit more of his story. And then we just prayed and asked God to, for him to be able to cast his anxieties onto God. And he had grown up Muslim and uh, we were just talking through some of that. So we prayed and we prayed in the name of Jesus and then um, asked for God to just clear this anxiety away from him. And amazingly enough, well, it shouldn't be, but it is to us, God lifted his anxiety right there. And it was just like a weight physically came off of his shoulders and he started smiling and, and all of that. And he goes, this is what you do? And I'm like, I don't know what else we would do. You know, we walk around. He's like, you walk around and you pray for people and encourage them. And like, it's intercession. And people can be so incredibly deeply encouraged when you pray for them. And you just take the time to move toward them and say, hey, I'm going to ask God through Jesus to help you. This is what intercession is. Colossians 1.9 says this about intercession. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. James 5.16, confess your sins to one, another, to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It can be so encouraging and so life-changing to pray for one another, encouraging one another very, very deeply. I'm going to ask our, our response teams to come up. Now we're going to walk through um, communion, and I'll talk a little bit about that, and then we're also going to do some singing at the back end of that, or some screaming, depending on how communion goes. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, I received this from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given, it, given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what I want for you to think about is your Savior securing and blessing you with salvation for all of eternity. The, the, the power of an indestructible life being brought onto you. That's his blessing to you. Then I also want you to think about when you're taking the bread and the cup that he is interceding for you right now. He's praying for you right now. Even things that you may not know that you need prayer for, he is praying. He's all over it. He knows what you need before the words come out of your mouth. That he is praying for you, that his heart toward you is to constantly for the rest of eternity, to pray for you, to pray for Redeemer Church, to pray for your family, to pray for the things that you don't even see. That's how I want us to take communion. And then if God puts it on your heart to pray for someone, either in person or just intercede from them where you're at in your seat, but to be praying for one another, to be interceding for one another in the same way that Jesus is interceding for us, going to the Father, asking for deep mercy for people, asking for um, things to be made right, asking for jobs to be taken care of, asking for income to be uh, filled in, asking for whatever, however it is, anxiety to be lifted, um, for, for habitual sin to be broken, but asking and interceding for each other and praying for each other. I'm going to pray. We'll, I'll get out of the way and we'll continue. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for praying for us. And I do pray, Lord, that that has a, a deep effect on us. That when we think of and know and understand that you are praying for us, that it would cause us, Lord, to then go and pray for other people. I pray, Lord, that it is um, so apparent your heart for us with these verses on you interceding for us. I pray, Lord, that it moves us to this place where we are, we just can't believe it, but we want to and that we trust you and that we have faith and that we are convinced of how much that you care about us because of this intercessory prayer that you do for us. I pray for this, Lord. I pray that you would move this room, that you would change hearts in this room right now in the name of Jesus. Amen.